Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. And this interview that you're going to be hearing is with Dr. Paul Thomas. It's a particularly poignant and I would even say juicy interview because it's talking about something that many people don't really feel comfortable about. We're going to be talking about addictions. Dr. Paul Thomas received his medical degree from Dartmouth Medical School back in 1985, and since then he's been board certified in pediatrics, addiction medicine, and integrative and holistic medicine. So what I like about that trio is that he has been able to bridge seemingly very different things all into one coherent web and with lots of different solutions. Dr. Paul was actually at my home some months ago interviewing me for the Addiction Summit, which is happening soon. I would very much encourage you to sign up for the summit. It is free and you can find the link in the show notes. He has a book that he came out with, um, which is uh, The Addiction Spectrum, A Compassionate Holistic Approach to Recovery. That is on the horizon in September 2018. He's got another book. You know, he's a busy guy. And what I really like about him is that he is so personable and easy to relate to. He is full of stories about his own journey, his own path with his own addictions that I think we have so much to learn from. So have a listen in and um, again, feel free to join us at the Addiction Summit coming up. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. And today I have an incredible guest with me, Dr. Paul Thomas. He, uh, gosh, you know, Dr. Paul, you are so intriguing in a variety of ways. Uh, You have really straddled these very seemingly disparate areas of pediatrics and addiction. So I'm so excited to talk with you about that interface today. So welcome. Well, thank you, Deanna. And I'm delighted to be on your podcast. Well, you know, after having you uh, at my home interviewing me for your addiction summit, um, you're just, I really, there's something about who you are as a person, what you have to bring to the world. And so it's really my honor to, uh, to have you here talking about the great work that you are doing. So well, before- thank, you, thank you for those <laughs> kind words. I'm a product of a lot of uh, love and nurture along the way and, and a lot of stumbles too, right? We fall and then we get up and we dust ourselves off and we try to hopefully learn from those experiences. Well, and, and that's really what enriches our lives and then what eventually helps us to, to help others. And you have such an interesting life journey, and I do want to get into that. But before we dive in, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody that comes on, uh, and that is, what is your favorite color? Well, Deanna, that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I always used to say blue. Because I don't know actually why I have blue eyes. I somehow it was attracted to blue. I don't think I was raised like boys are blue and girls are pink because I was in Africa growing up and 
yeah, those colors just weren't around much. It was more earth tones and greens and all that. But lately, this is totally cheating on your question, but I wrote a book called The Addiction Spectrum, of course, which you know, and I love the spectrum concept. So rainbows, if you look at my Dr. Paul approved logo, it's sort of a rainbow of colors. I, I like the whole spectrum of color. I know. No, I completely hear you. And the reason why I laughed after I asked the question, because I'm thinking of you sitting there in your Hawaiian shirt, and I'm thinking, how is he ever going to choose, choose a color? <laughs> <laughs> Just pick one. <laughs> well, and um, it's always symbolic to me, whatever people say, because blue to me is, uh, at least from ancient traditions and healing arts, is the color of the mind, which is kind of appropriate. But then you've taken the mind into the full-on spectrum, which is why I gravitate towards your work so much. So, Well, thank you. And I guess now that I think about it, it definitely is blue. I, in my pediatric office, uh, I remember when we were designing it, I got to design it from scratch. Uh, I wanted a lot of blue. And the consultants were going, no, no, blue is a cold color. And I said, no, I'm talking about blue like the ocean. And anyway, we ended up having an ocean theme and we have blue carpets that normally you wouldn't think would go, but it goes very nice. It's a nice, warm feeling place. So I'll, I'll stick with blue, but I love the whole rainbow. The whole rainbow. That's music yeah. to my ears. And by the way, um, I've had a little bit of a bird's eye view into your clinic because I've looked at some of your YouTube videos, which are phenomenal. And if people have not checked them out, you've got to just see like uh, Dr. Paul cleaning out kids' ears and um, <laughs> shaving off warts. Uh, I mean, it's just... It's just great. I, I think it's one of those things where it's like people are fascinated, but yet almost kind of repelled by this and repulsed. But yet it's like, wait, this is our body and these things happen to us. So, you yeah. know, and, and I, what, what I've tried to do with the YouTube channel and people can just look up Paul Thomas, MD to get to me or Dr. Paul, um, you know, I'm, I'm mostly a pediatrician and then about a quarter of my life I'm working in the addiction field. And I wanted to bring people into my life as a pediatrician and also be educational, but it's kind of morphed into more entertainment with a little bit of education. People just love seeing gross things, different things. So we provide that when we can, and then I throw in education when I can. Yeah, and your son does a great job filming you. He, he kind of adds that additional goofy touch, which um, makes it even more engaging. Yeah, he sure does. So, I'm, you know, I, I know your story. I, I know basically the, the swath of um, your life experiences just at a very high level. But I, I really want the listeners to get a good understanding of who you are and how you got to pediatrics and addictions, because I feel like that's kind of like an unlikely duo, but yet it makes sense if you start thinking about it and going deeper. But tell us more about you and your path. Sure. Uh, I grew up a missionary kid in Zimbabwe. It was Rhodesia when I was there. I went to high school in Swaziland. I was up on a mountain. It was a wonderful high school, boarding school. Uh, in Africa, top students would go to top schools. So, I, I mean, I really had a blessed childhood. Came to the United States for college, which was always the plan, and then ended up at Dartmouth Medical School, where I became an MD. And I have to say, you know, retrospectively looking back on this amazing childhood I had, only recently as I've been really delving into the addiction work did I realize that, hmm, 
that stress of leaving my entire support system in Africa and being absolutely on my own, so to speak, for college. I mean, I was 17 years old. I was 13 when I went off to boarding school. I think that was probably the environmental stressor. I call stress the X factor when it comes to addictions. I think that was my environmental stress factor that had me pick up cigarettes, had me drinking too much. Um, I was very motivated, always hardworking, so it was just sort of binge drinking. But when you look back at how I drank, I don't drink anymore. I've got 15 years of you know complete sobriety, clean and sober. But um, you know, looking back on it, I love the effect. And in fact, my co-author Jennifer Margulis says, "Well, you know, you have social anxiety," and I'm going, "No, I don't." <laughs> but it, I think I do. You know, once I started looking at myself, and so you know. A lot of people get confused about addictions and you think, well, you're just weak character or, um, you know, my mom used to say, why do you have to drown yourself in terms of how much I would drink? And uh, if you are struggling with an addiction, you probably like the effect or it's doing something for you that you weren't able to do on your own. And so it actually was the solution to some problem where it becomes Real challenging is that our solution, in my case, we're talking alcohol, I'm an alcoholic, became a bigger problem than the anxiety that I was trying to treat with the alcohol. So that's just a little background to throw the addiction in right up front. But early on, I was always, when I was in medical school, I, I you know, you go through all these rotations and you do surgery. It's like, nope, I'm no way I'm going to live in a mask my whole life. Uh, I, I don't like heat. I don't like I'm a little claustrophobic. That just wasn't going to work. And internal medicine was just too, uh, I don't know, you know, patients' charts that were stacked two feet high and 13 to 15 medications. And, and you know, people drink and smoke, and then they want you to put them back together again. It just seemed futile. And then when I did my pediatrics rotation, it was like, oh, this is me. I love kids. Kids seem to respond well to me. It's, it's just like a natural fit. And I haven't regretted it since. I absolutely love pediatrics. Where I got involved in addiction medicine was, first of all, I realized I was an alcoholic and fought that battle to finally quit that whole deal and get on a journey of recovery, which is funny. Somebody was asking me just recently, are you glad you're an alcoholic, <laughs> right? Yeah. And as a kid, you don't grow up thinking, well, when I grow up, I want to be an alcoholic. It's like, no, of course not. And the way I answered that question was, you know, five years into my recovery, I was just reaching that point where I was getting comfortable enough with my journey that I could say, yes, I, I had a problem with alcohol. And today I have no problem saying, yep, I'm an alcoholic because as a result of acknowledging that, as a result of embracing a process that, you know, what we call recovery, which is everything about getting healthy and well, both, you know, mind, spirit and body, I don't think I would have reached the levels of awareness that I have today, I know I wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't have reached, you know, just an openness that I have to life and to other people. Um, back before I got on, on this journey, I think I was very selfish and self-centered, and I, I'm not sure I would have pulled out of that. So I am actually grateful for those reasons. And of course, the combination of pediatrics and addiction being rare and unique in that way actually becomes an even greater blessing because I can pull some things together for people that I've tried to do in my book, The Addiction Spectrum, and I've tried to do in the Addiction Summit that we're, uh, I'm the host. I interviewed 28 
experts, authors like yourself, Deanna, your interview was just like, that was the one where I said, oh, I am doing the right thing because that's not your area. And yet the wisdom you shared in your interview and folks, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously, you know, Deanna Minich is just a gem of a person with such wisdom, but you've got to listen to her talk on the addiction summit because it was a masterpiece. In fact, I, Dan, I think yours is one of the ones we're hosting for free. So when people go to sign up, they just get to watch that one right away. Uh, I was so impressed with your um, interview that I wanted to make that one as available as possible. Wow. Um, well, first of all, thank you. And um, I, I really like what you said about your own journey and how taking something like an addiction and turning it into something that was life-giving and now you are serving people in really big ways and bringing together so many people to a bigger platform. I'm kind of curious because I'm taking notes while you're talking and I'm really like, whenever I'm interviewing somebody, I'm really almost like porting into their story and like almost in that moment. And I wrote down, you know, what was the moment? What was the moment that you actually had the revelation that you were an alcoholic? How did you, um, you know, really realize that you did have a problem? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't so, know if you do remember. I mean, maybe. Oh, you do. I, I yeah. remember a, a gazillion moments is the problem. Uh, it, I used to do something to try to motivate myself with New Year's resolutions. So on December 31st, I would set the evening aside to put together my goals for the coming year. And I stumbled, I used to make big charts with pictures and posters, and I stumbled on the 1989 poster in, in, a, in a garage when we moved a few years ago, and at the top of my poster was Stop Drinking. That was 1989. I didn't successfully stop drinking until 2002. And what I can tell you is from 89 till 2000, when I first walked into an AA room and said, you know, I need help. Um, I knew I had a problem. I mean, it was it was right there on my poster. And in fact, for many other posters, I it remained the top of my list of what I needed to do with my life. I knew I was drinking too much. I knew it was starting to impact my motivation, my ability to, to be successful in life. I mean, you know, on the outside, I looked good. I was a doctor. I was teaching other doctors. I was running case conferences. I was the medical director of a hospital for pediatrics. So I had all the accolades. And on the outside, I looked good. But on the inside, I knew I was dying. I had this emptiness. It got to the point where on the outside I put on a smile, but I knew it was fake. And, oh, I'll tell you about one point since you mentioned this. I walked into the hospital to see a newborn, and I was hungover like crazy. And this was right before I got sober, finally, for the last time. And I put on my fake smile because inside I was just feeling horrible. And a nurse gave me back my fake smile. It was, it, it, it was a mirror and it just like, it was like a knife in my heart. It was like, Oh my God. You know, I, I saw it, I saw myself and it was, it was a really big slap, like wake up you idiot. Wow. <laughs> um, and then the final incentive was actually fear. So, uh, my wife was struggling the book, the addiction spectrum has my wife's story in there as well. So people can certainly get more details, but she was struggling with her own addiction to opiates. She had had multiple jaw surgeries, horrendous surgeries. I mean, she had her toes transplanted into her jaws. She's had 
unthinkable types of things done to her. So chronic pain, and then finally you just succumb because she was given so many opiates for so long. But her progression in her opiate addiction was getting to the point where I was fearful for her life. And I thought, all right, I have got to get sober so that I can do an intervention. How can I intervene when I'm, you know, equally in, in my own addiction with alcohol? So I was about to go with a friend up to a mountain. She, she had never gone skiing, and I said, oh, I'll take you skiing. But at that stage of my drinking, I was fine during the day, maybe a little hungover to begin with. But I didn't, never drank during the day. But I could not predict what would happen in the evenings. And we were going to be on a mountain in snow. I'm the designated driver. And at that point, I was drinking every night. And I just saw us careening off a mountain and dying. And I thought, mm. out, of, out of fear. Mm. And I felt horrible. I mean, when you're in that addiction cycle, if any of our listeners are struggling with a substance or a behavior, the remorse, the regrets, the, the just beating yourself up, embarrassment, all of that, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's not a fun existence. You may get some momentary pleasure or relief from your substance, but the rest of the 24 hours are just miserable or you're passed out. So I knew I needed to correct things. I finally walked in out of fear. And I'll say this, fear can get you into recovery, but it won't keep you there. So it is really important for listeners to understand that you have got to embrace a whole program of recovery where, I mean, you've, you're either attending meetings or you've got specific counseling work you're doing with an addiction counselor. You're working on your mental health. You're working on your diet, your, your sleep, your exercise. These are all things I talk about in my book, and we highlight extensively in the summit. All the resources are there, the things you want to consider doing, um, because you can't do this alone. I think the alone, the isolation is what we do in our addiction. And when you want to start, you know, really living life to the fullest in full color, like you would say, Deanna, <laughs> then, then you've got to embrace, you know, a, a whole community of sober, helpful uh, people who are going to support and nurture you on that journey. So, Dr. Paul, what I'm hearing, and I'm making a little list here, I'm hearing diet, sleep, exercise, community, fear can get you into recovery, but it won't keep you there. I want to talk about something that not a lot of people are comfortable talking about, but it may be an antidote to addiction, and that is spirituality. And the only reason I'm going to ask this of you is because when you first started telling your story, you told how you were from a missionary family, and um, you know I don't really know your your religious beliefs, but I know within AA that there is a sense of um, belonging, but then also a sense of something greater. Mm -hmm. And I want you to wax on how much does one's belief systems in, we don't even have to pin it down to a religion, but something greater really helps them with addiction or does yes. it? Yes. Yes. Oh, it absolutely does. Um, so I happened to, uh, I went on the journey of AA, and of course, we're supposed to be anonymous about all that, but I can't totally tell my story without mentioning that. Um, but I will say, in that main meeting that I attended every morning for a long, long time, I still go to meetings, but I'm in a different one now, uh, there was a guy there, his name was Roger, and he was an atheist, and he was very, very vocal about it. So anytime anybody brought up God or spirituality, he would hit hard with, that's a bunch of crap, you know, I'm, I'm 20 some years sober and I don't even believe in God, blah, 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 blah. However, what I think he was sort of overlooking or not really being completely 
open and honest about was the fact that the whole process of just being in that group became a higher power. In other words, it, it was a source of truth. It was a source of wisdom to which he was tapping into that was other than himself. And, and I guess for myself personally, I, obviously, I grew up in the church, a missionary kid. I mean, I went to a Billy Graham convention in Africa, you know, one of those stadiums filled with tens of thousands of people at the age of 13 and walked down the aisle and turned my life over. Um, when I was struggling to get sober, I went... I was a churchgoer. I would go up to the altar and be prayed over. And I'd come home after a service like that where I was so disgusted with myself, I'm done, that's it. And I turned it over and I'd be hours later digging through the trash because in Oregon at that time there was no, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. I'm digging through the trash to look for the bottle I threw out in disgust before I went to church. <laughs> um, I, that's how incredibly powerful addiction is. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to share that story, but it was my truth. And there was something in my case about complete surrender and just turning this thing over to, I'll just say a higher power or a something other than myself. And you, and you might ask, well, you did turn it over at the altar. It's true. I did. But I think what I needed was that community of people who were in the same boat. So when you go to a recovery program, whether it be a 12 step or smart recovery or women in recovery or some other program, even a counselor, although counseling usually is once a week and that's not enough. Initially, it isn't. Uh, but do whatever and everything you can. You're surrounded by people who know what they're doing because they're doing what you're trying to do. And that that sense of, ah, I'm going to be okay because I've got examples all around me of people who are who, who, who are just like me and have found a solution. And so it's a beautiful thing. And it is spiritual, but not in the church sense of spirituality. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You know, the, the whole idea of having your tribe. Uh, and I think that... Um, there's also a spectrum of tribe too, right? Like we could be engaged with people who are not supportive, who are keeping us in addiction. And we could maybe even translate that as, well, isn't that my community? You know, those right. are my friends. So how do we kind of give us some pointers on how do you find the right tribe? Because I do think that out of all the scientific and medical literature, one of the things that stands out, it's almost like nobody's talking about it. It is the sense of community versus social isolation. But then I don't think people realize the how the community aspect has to be quality, right? It has to be like organic food to conventional food. We can't just take any community and, and glom onto that. We need to find a community that is really higher purpose and that yep. will take us to the next level. So talk more about how do we get there with community and what, what have you found? So oh, the community piece is, is one of the key factors that will help you stay on the right path. So you cannot be living, let's say your problem is alcohol, your problem is heroin or, or opiates. You cannot live in a home that's where alcohol and opiates <clears throat> are all around you. And if, if you're truly an addict, that is, that is impossible. 
In other words, there's no way you're going to be successful. So just acknowledging that fact and then making action plan to get yourself into a living situation that's safe. In other words, that is not constantly exposing you to your substance of choice or multiple substances. Yet people need to also be careful they don't switch addictions. So, you know, if you're an opiate addict, well, I can drink. That's legal. Well, real quick, you could become an alcoholic. But uh, it is absolutely vital that you find safe healthy relationships and work on good stress management because I think stress is the X factor that just leads us to wanting to look for relief. That's great. I I love that. Um, The only thing is I'll hear from clients over and over again, you know, but it's my spouse or, you know, my spouse is, is, helping me to stay in this addictive pattern or my family. Yep. I mean, I can't get rid yep. of my mother. I'm right. not saying that for me, but you know, what do you do with like uh, these relationships that there's no way to uh, take yourself out of? I mean, you are connected because of blood or because of vows. So yeah. what do you do with that? Well, <laughs> if you are dying, if your addiction is killing you, you're not going to be with that spouse or mother much longer anyway. So you really have to actually get a little bit selfish. And I'm talking about in the early phase where you've started to realize, oh my goodness, I have a problem and I have to do something or I'm going to die, right? It's, you need, you need to pray for willingness and, or desperation and willingness, right? If you don't have both, you're just going to carry on and try to make, make it work. And you're going to just be spiraling down that, that, endless hopelessness that will ultimately kill you anyway. So I'll give you a story. Well, a couple stories from my own personal experience. Uh, I had a son, well, two sons who, ah, three, you got <laughs> I have 11 kids, right? I have nine, nine or 10 kids, depending on how you count. And I have, <laughs> I have five boys who have all struggled in one way or another. And actually I have kicked out four of them from my home because they weren't willing to stop drinking or using. And that was just one of the rules I had to have in my house. We had way too many kids to just let them run wild and drink or drug in the home. It just, that wasn't going to work. And I had to actually kick my own kids out. One of them that was most painful to do, he was about 19 or 20 years old. And he continued to insist on using his drug of choice in the house. And he knew the rules and he chose to be kicked out. Right. So you say, oh, I could never kick my child out. No, you're not. You are setting the guidelines and then you do need to enforce those guidelines. So he made a choice to continue using Therefore, he couldn't live in our home. It's Portland, Oregon in the winter. He had exhausted all the couches of his friends and he was at the homeless shelter. This is a doctor's kid mm-hmm. at the rescue mission in downtown Portland in the middle of winter. Somebody was trying to help him how to figure out how to get onto food stamps. And guess what? Two weeks later, he came crawling home saying, I'm willing now to stop using and to, uh, can I come back home? So that's an example of sometimes it does take tough love. I'll give you another example that sounds even harder, but I had to do an intervention on my wife. And so she's in treatment. Now the, the results from opiate addiction, when you come out of treatment, there's a very high relapse rate. And I'm, it just so happened that I was three weeks ahead of her in recovery, right? So I was going to get sober for a year and then do an intervention. Well, I got sober, and three weeks later, the, the opportunity was like, we have to intervene now or she's going to die. It, it really got desperate. So I am very young in my journey. She's coming out of treatment, three months in treatment, 
and she's a wreck. And I'm seeing the writing on the wall, and I say to her, look, honey, we've got a house full of kids. This house has to go with these kids. We can't, they're they're not going to survive if they're not in this home. So let's make an agreement. Whoever relapses has to leave because Mm. whoever, whoever has not relapsed obviously needs to stay with the kids. Now, I, I wasn't feeling at risk for relapse at that moment, but sure, it can happen to anybody. But I was aware that there was no way she could relapse and I'd be okay. Because that was, if you're in a relationship with somebody who's doing something that, that they're not supposed to, let's say they have their own substance use thing, or there's something they're doing that's very negative for their health or the relationship, but you have something also. There's an unspoken pact. Don't mess with my issues and I won't mess with mm-hmm. yours. Mm-hmm. And this is something that keeps people sick or keeps them in their addictions. Oh, t- till they die. I mean, it, so we got to clean that all up. And I thought I, I was so for me, I had come to the point where I thought to drink is to die. No way. I'm not going to let anything, not even my wife, get in the way of my journey here. So I laid it out. And guess what? She never relapsed. And I I don't know that what I said was, well, I know for a fact that's not the only reason. Thank goodness she has had an amazing program. I mean, she's more plugged in than I am. She goes to more meetings. She has a sponsor. She goes to counseling to work on outside issues. Uh, She has just latched on to everything she can. And and let me tell you, if you're out there feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough to to become, you know, an amazing person, or I'm not good enough to to really be successful at, at kicking this or that. Yes, you are. And in fact, the further you went down, the harder your story, the more hope you're going to bring others. And this has been my wife's story. I mean, she was abused as a child. She's dealt with uh, incredible, horrendous things. And now she's sponsoring women. She's like, she's an amazing, amazing person. And that didn't happen overnight. It's the journey, but she embraced the journey and you can too. So did you interview her for the addiction summit? I hope you did. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like her story is just, you know, uh, her story's in my book. I should have put her, uh, I I don't know if she was ready to, to go on blast in that way. She's, she's, she's allowed me to put a lot of her story in the book, but I think she's a little shy about on video stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but you know, maybe I should have tried a little harder (laughs) anyway. Everybody has their time. I was just curious because it sounds like such a, um, gosh, you know, healing for her and healing for others to hear what she's been through. Yeah. No, she, she, she really is amazing. I interviewed two people in in the addiction summit who were uh, instrumental in her journey, kind of the big turning point that dealt with childhood trauma stuff, PTSD, uh, you know, the addiction summit that you can watch for free if you pre-register, uh, has everything. I mean, it, it, it deals with those, all those issues, whether it's child abuse as a child or childhood trauma or neglect or, or, um, you know, the lack of, of meditation and mindfulness. I mean, we've got it in there. And of course the, the addiction stuff and, and then the kind of wisdom that you bring with, with the importance of nutrition and the importance of healing on so many levels. You know, Dr. Polo, as I'm listening to you, I can't help but be thinking that there might be some people listening to what you're saying, thinking like, okay, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't use drugs. Um, I don't have an addiction. You know, that's not me. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe they haven't read your book. 
But, you know, how do we actually know if we are addicted to something? So I work primarily in the realm of food. And so some of the things that come to my mind and I jotted them down are things like caffeine and sugar and bread. And, you know, how how do we know if we're truly addicted? I'm, I'm kind of curious what your response is to that. Sure. So um, you're probably addicted if you're um feeling like you're not living life to the fullest there's something in your life that's holding you back uh from going all the way and a lot of times you know you you have actual um anxiety you have depression you have low energy these are all just symptoms that that might be reflective of the fact that there's something you're addicted to that's actually keeping you from living life to the fullest um, but how do we know what it is? Because, you know, we could say, wow, you know, every morning I have so much fatigue or I have no strength. I, I don't feel like connecting to my community. How do we know if addiction is actually the culprit behind it all? Mm, that's a great question. I, th- I think if you reflect on what you're doing, uh, I mean, one of the things we cover in great detail in the summit and in my book is the importance of eating real food, of um, reducing stress, getting your nutrients, the whole spectrum of nutrients, including vitamin D, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise. These sound like, oh, that's just normal, no-brainer stuff. But no, it's vital to you being able to – you know, I talk about an addiction spectrum, and that's where I believe we're all potential addicts or potential overusers of substances or overdoing certain behaviors, right? So uh, let me give you an example of the cell phone. I had a 16... <laughs> oh, that's a, a good one. <laughs> I had a 16-year-old come into my practice uh, a couple, three, three, four months ago. She had seen a psychiatrist. She was in counseling. She was extremely depressed. I mean, she just couldn't you know, that flat affect depression mm-hmm. where you just can't mm-hmm. make an emotion. She was just flat. And she was on two different antidepressants in counseling, not able to go to school. She was so struggling with focus, uh, suicidal. And I'd known this family and I'd known this girl since she was a baby. And she used to be a athlete, top student, uh, amazing. And she clearly, I mean, we went through the story, no substance use. Nothing, nothing whatsoever. So I'm going through all this and I go, well, let's adjust your medication a little bit. I'll see you in a month. I talked about, you know, food and sleep and exercise and all the usual things. She comes back a month later, beaming, happy, just looking like the old kid I'd known before. I'd never seen such a transformation in one month. I say, wow, you look like you feel better. Oh, I feel great. I'm just like, what? How did this happen? Uh, What did you do? I don't know. Uh, Well, you adjusted my medicine. I'm going, no, that wouldn't do it. Not this kind of a dramatic turnaround. Then the mom volunteers. She says, well, remember, honey, you had a concussion right after you left Dr. Paul's office last time, and you've been on, like, basically bed rest for the whole month. Uh. And I had this little aha moment. I said, how much time had you been spending on your cell phone? Oh, a lot. I said, how much is a lot? Oh, too much. I said, come on, tell me, how much is too much? Oh, seven or eight hours a day. This was on school days. On school. Basically every waking hour she was on her phone. Now, what happened was because she couldn't go on any screens, she had total brain rest because of her concussion. 
her brain was allowed to heal. And the whole depression, anxiety, ADD symptoms, suicidal. So the symptoms were suicidal feelings, depression, anxiety, no focus. The problem, in retrospect, once we figured it out, was her addiction to her cell phone. And, and, and those two you don't usually think of as going together. So I think for listeners, if your life isn't going exactly how you want it to go, you can't look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you. I love everything about you. Everything you're doing is exactly how it's supposed to be. Don't change a thing. And you got to maintain eye contact with yourself in the mirror while you say those things. And if you can do that and you feel absolutely happy, peaceful, you're on track. You probably don't have an addiction. But if you can't, or if you're struggling with any of the symptoms that are so common with addictions, anxiety, you're feeling agitated, you're, uh, you can't sleep, I mean, depression, anxiety, and withdrawal symptoms. Here's the other thing with addictions. When you don't do the behavior or don't take the substance that you're wondering if you might be addicted to, how do you feel? Right. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you're feeling worse when you don't have that substance, that's withdrawal. And that withdrawal could be you're anxious. It could be you're just feeling on edge. You're a little agitated. Uh, You might have trouble sleeping. You might be restless. You might have trouble with your appetite, upset tummy, you know, shakiness, sweatiness. There's all sorts of things that happen depending on what it is you're withdrawing from. But you can even have withdrawal symptoms from behavioral stuff. I mean, people who gamble start getting really anxious if they can't go back and gamble. Right. If if you're addicted to your cell phone and you can't use it, you start feeling anxious and and agitated because you can't get to your phone. So those are some things I think people can tune into if they're trying to question whether or not they might have an addiction. But I just want to, before we end, restate the spectrum concept. Uh, So the book I wrote, The Addiction Spectrum, was to introduce the concept that, you know, I, for example, in Africa at, at a boarding school, missionary kid. I wasn't addicted to alcohol or anything. I had zero access. I had an amazing childhood and zero access, but I was an addict or an alcoholic in the making, just on the very, very mild end of the spectrum. What I had initially were just risk factors. I had a family history that I didn't know about for addiction. I had some epigenetic things, which are, uh, you know, that's a whole nother talk we could do, but... um, I definitely have some big epigenetic risk factors that put me at risk for genetics. Just it's in my genes in the single nucleotide polymorphisms. My environment was perfect at first, but that would change when I came to the States for college. And and my diet, once I left Africa, wasn't very good. I mean, I was a college student eating whatever. And then I got exposures, right? I got exposures to drinking. I got exposures to smoking. Um, I had loneliness. I, I, you know, I had stress like I had never known before. And I didn't cherish my sleep, so I just trashed my sleep. I was a very hardworking person. So these are all, all these factors that moved me along the spectrum with regards to my alcoholism. I went to drinking too much, binge drinking, to eventually drinking every day. And that's that whole spectrum of disease which can happen for a number of substances or behaviors. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I, I think you put that um, as some final concluding comments. That's that's really wonderful. And that's really where we see medicine in the 21st century, right? It's this whole thing of genetic predisposition, but then depending on what we do in our environment, and you've said it over and over again, this idea that stress is like the X factor. And so yep. we can have that perfect storm where everything kind of comes together and it's like, voila, now we're yep. addicted because we're not satisfying some, some need on that spectrum. Right. Dr. Paul, this has been awesome, awesome, awesome. And the Addiction Summit is um, going to be like 100 times this, right? With so many different voices chiming in, giving people solutions. And so- Oh, my goodness, Deanna. It, I was in tears every other interview. I mean, it was that powerful. Goosebumps multiple times while I'm doing this interview. This is going to be the most powerful summit a person could ever attend. And your talk in particular was just a gift. So those of you who know... Uh, Deanna, you've got to tune in, listen to her talk, but try to get it all. I mean, try to, they're, they're, oh, yeah, get it all. And the easiest yeah. way is really, I mean, it's such a modest uh, amount to buy even the whole package just to have those talks to be listening to. Because let's just say like right now you don't feel like you're really active with any addiction, but there, then there could be a family member or, you know, something happens down the line. It's just good to have those talks in your yeah. library to kind of refer back to. So yeah. tell us how we sign up for the Addiction Summit. Well, um, uh, you, I know, as one of the speakers can offer folks your personal link to the summit. Another way is just go to addictionspectrum.com. And at that website will be a link to the summit and a link to my book, The Addiction Spectrum. But uh, Deanna, if you if you provide your link, by all means, folks, just use that one. It, it just gives her credit for, for providing that link and, and you're putting on this uh, podcast, so you should use yours. Otherwise, addictionspectrum.com will get you right where you need to be. And just please sign up for free. At least do that for right now. If you're not sure you want to own the thing, they do offer it at an amazing discount. And it's I've watched these interviews. So first of all, I do them and then I watch them and I've watched them now twice. And every time I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is good. And I and I and I was there. It's like I can't believe how good this stuff is. It's a really powerful pack packed with information. So I, I hope you'll join us at the summit. And Deanna, thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to the summit. 